Listeners should be aware, there may be spoilers. To steal from the Empire, to just walk in like you belong. They're so proud of themselves. So fat and unsatisfied. They can't imagine that someone like me would ever get inside their house. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by John Gilroy and Jan Miles. John has edited such powerful films as Miracle, Michael Clayton, for which he was nominated for the BAFTA and Eddie, Warrior, The Bourne Legacy, Pacific Rim, Nightcrawler, for which he was nominated for the BAFTA, Eddie, and Independent Spirit Award, and Velvet Buzzsaw while Jan has cut such fantastic series as The Prisoner, Game of Thrones, Sherlock, for which he won the BAFTA, Eddie, and Primetime Emmy, and The Crown, for which he was nominated for the Eddie and won the Primetime Emmy. Now they have collaborated to craft one of the best series of the year, Andor. John, Jan, I just loved what you guys did with Andor, and I'm super excited to talk to you about it today. Thank you. We're happy to be here. So... I know how you got involved with it, John, but uh, Jan, how did you become involved with the project? And I guess maybe, John, you should explain that you're part of the project because, for one thing, you cut Rogue One, but also because you are related to the showrunner. I am. Tony Gilroy is my brother. We've worked together on pretty much everything he's ever done. So, yeah, so I, I jumped on board. I've worked with a director called Ben Caron quite a few times and Ben called me and said it's this prequel to Rogue One would you be interested and I said was that Star Wars and he said yeah I said yes please that was a big unanimous yes and I had a quick call with John and we spoke for probably a good 45 minutes to an hour and talked through what the expectations were and spoke very much about Rogue One as I really enjoyed the young man the first three films and Rogue One was a big return yeah, that essence of those films. So to sort of meet John and then arrive at Pinewood and start shooting with Ben. And, and it was nice because me and Ben have a kind of succinct relationship. And that was the beginning of the journey, which is probably close to two years ago, John, isn't it? Yeah. It's good that we're both here because I kicked this off with Tim Porter on the first block and Jan was the anchor man with our last block. So yeah, we kind of bracketed the whole season between the two of us. Yeah, and I saw that you were co-editing with Tim and I think maybe some other editors as well. Was that just because as a co-producer, you had so much on your plate? The first block, I was definitely scheduled to cut. Tony was originally going to direct the first block and did a lot of prep work. And then COVID happened, we were pushed and we were starting up and he just said, I'm going to be the showrunner. And we, we were lucky enough to get Toby Haynes to do the first block. Tim Porter was hired as the other editor, and it was interesting because Tony stayed in New York because of COVID. I was in LA. I drove across the country in a camper, and I, Tony and I worked together in New York for the first six or seven months of the show in orbit of the rest of the production and the cutting room. The brain trust was Toby and Tim and I and Tony, because you know Tony had done so much prep. So we put those first three shows together and um, just set the tone of what things were going to be. And it all made sense because the writing was so strong. So it was just a continuation of that. I think everything else, editors were assigned 
specific episodes. Tim and I just, I'd never done television before. And I said, what if we did all three together? We just tag team them. And he was fine with that. It allowed me to explore all the three episodes. He's a monster cutter, as is Jan. So it was just fun. I'm a co-producer on season one, and I don't know a lot of UK editors. So I really, I was relying on Sana Wallenberg, our executive producer, who has relationships with a lot of these guys and gals. But when Jan came across, I knew his work anyway. I was really excited to get him because I'd just seen what he'd done. The Crown and Sherlock and a few other things. Really good work. Yeah. That's very kind of you, John. I had to bring John to beg him to take me on. <laughs> <laughs> And you guys were over in New York and we were in rainy Pinewoods. It, it, it worked. I mean, that's what COVID did teach us, that you can work remotely. And it's not something I don't like to do it if I don't have to. But it, at least Tony and I were eyeball to eyeball. And we've been in the trench before a million times. So you'd have Zoom calls and you talk to people and you talk to them every day. And finally, I did make it over to London for the next year of finishing the show. So as a co-producer, were you also involved in the visual effects and the sound and the music, reviewing all the different edits of the series? How did that work? All the other editors cut their shows and I'm cutting mine and then I'm overseeing. And then eventually they all kind of become my episode in a way because I ended up finishing them. Jan and the other editors, they have their own relationship with VFX people. But as things get honed, I'm there for the final finishing and, and then driving all the mixes. We had great sound team, David Cord and Margie Pfeiffer, you know, obviously Nick Bertel's music. So yeah, I'm the quality control kind of on the back end of things. Just make sure everything works out okay. I've watched a little bit of the other Star Wars series, but this one just blew me away. And I was wondering how the sound design and the music compares to the other series as well. I think when we did Rogue One, we were forging new ground slightly. It was not yeah. in, the, in the regular Star Wars canon. And I think the idea was for this show was to just get a little more granular and take it even deeper. And that's exactly what we did. I mean, there's a certain canon about Star Wars sounds and we have Skywalker in our corner. So we're paying attention to that. We want this to be in the Star Wars universe, but musically very different, you know, just pushing the envelope yeah. a little further. And uh, that's something that Tony really wanted to do with Nick. And it really, I think, paid off. It really gave it a signature that made it stand apart from the other shows. Yeah. And it feels like it's got more grit and it's a darker universe. Was that a concern or was that the style that you were going for? And how were you calibrating Cass's character compared to Rogue One? I can't speak for everybody else. It was always on my mind a little bit. I want to please everybody. <laughs> I want to please the Star Wars fans. And I also think that this show maybe casts a wider net because it's not so signature Star Wars that maybe it gets a lot of people that wouldn't normally be interested in Star Wars. So I think we've succeeded in that. I think there's a lot of people, friends of mine, that might not be the biggest Star Wars fans that really flipped over the show because they just liked it as a story. Yeah, I would say that of the new... Star Wars movies, Rogue One is probably my favorite. Part of that is maybe because I'm older, but I just feel like it's so mature and it just has a very real feel to it. And I love that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, Rogue One fell into my lap and, and it was just such a 
fantastic experience. We kind of rejigged the film and didn't have a lot of time to do it, but it was fascinating how it sort of landed on its feet. And again, I credit Tony, man, because he just had a really good battle plan. It's funny, the piece of music in the final episode, and I, this is a spoiler, obviously, but the funeral procession, that was actually the first music that Tony wrote with Nick. That was the very first thing they did. It was probably like, I don't know, like three years ago or something now. That was their first collaboration, making this piece of music that we we're going to use for playback. And I think a lot of the reason that went off so well is because they did a lot of rehearsal with that music. And Jan put together an amazing Frankenstein version of all the video tap and some storyboards. It started with a quite crudely recorded piece of music. And I think the first pieces I pieced together was still images of Ben and his assistant, his ADs, and the cinematographer, <laughs> holding up instruments in still frames in the, in the different locations they were going to walk through. And it sort of organically grew from there. It started with these stills, and then they re-recorded the whole piece again with the instruments to have it feel slightly live in the atmosphere of the set of ferrets. And then additionally, the stunt guys were pretty amazing on this, and they sort of rehearsed their sequences and, and filmed them themselves. And they're pretty amazingly as well, John, right? They sort of comp the laser beams in and put the explosions on. And Oh, yeah. Their, their production value was amazing. You're like, wow, I, I want to I pull out $20 to see this. I, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. kind of crazy. No, yeah. Sometimes people, they go nuts with that stuff, but it's great. It's really good. It's really good for us to visualize it that way. Yeah, it was a really good sort of skeleton, the sort of evolution of that. You know, I built this guiding pathway that was pretty indestructible. I mean, it, it, it moved around. It wasn't as straightforward, it, you know, when we got into the thick of it. You put a little piece over here and it pulls the whole entire thing. Right. It was pretty knitted together. But having that visual guide, and, and, and again, when we got to the Marva thing, we recorded the voice first. And I cut that to the empty people staring at the cross and for the hologram and nothing there. If I remember the performance we recorded away from the set the first one was magical and then when we re-recorded her in the studio i went back to sort of probably 20 30 of the original recording you know mm. so that sort of first sketch was pretty good yeah it, it sort of really landed and it and i remember even when it didn't have the visual effect of the hologram we used to be sort of put the still Im image in just temp it and i sort of remember having the sort of goosebumps in the hairs on my arms go up thinking <laughs> this is really strong. I mean, Tony's right. That's how you know, right? That's how you know, yeah. And Tony's writing is obviously extraordinary. That just sort of paved the way. It was a really, really useful process. Well, that's probably why that sequence is so great as well, is because there does seem like there was a lot of planning done to that because it feels so well orchestrated. First, the guy hitting the anvil, which is creating a lot of tension. People are wondering what's happening then you've got this very discordant music as the musicians start tuning their instruments and then you've got them playing this this tune that is very powerful you even increase the pace of that and all that leading up to marva doing her speech which yeah. was so powerful that whole sequence it felt so well orchestrated and i think a lot of that probably has to do with all that planning and pre-editing that you guys did yeah felt really good people say you know really really impressed with the show and a lot of it has to do and this is a really good example we get quite a bit of money for a television show but we can only do something one way like in a feature we all worked on features and they'll throw money at something and they'll do things a million different ways and they'll 
waste money. We could not waste anything. Everything you see is on the screen. And it's things like working that whole thing out. That's the only mm. way that they could have shot this and realized it on the screen with all the visual effects and stuff. It's like so much of it in television is super planning, like just really knowing what you're going to do and then doing it, following it through. That's just a perfect example of what we did through the whole season. Well, that's very interesting because this is your first television series, as you said, John. Right. So this was probably a little bit new to you, but John, you've done other television series. So how would you compare this? Well, I've just finished my first feature. So I guess John and I are like a mirror, aren't we? I've done a fair bit of TV <laughs> and done some many <laughs> with the opposite sides of the glass. Television sort of evolved in the sort of last decade with technology and the film people coming from film back into television. Television became like films. True. And Andor feels like a bunch of films. They're like big movies. Yeah, it's one long movie. One long movie. And, and I guess the defining big difference of a movie is the runtime, isn't it? That first cut's three and a half hours long, and nobody wants that. And television has that great freedom of... Oh, man. Which is really brilliant. I so agree. T TV's now, like, some stuff I watch is, like, 21 minutes long. And if it works, it works. If it's 55 minutes long, it works, it works. It used to be back in the sort of network TV days where you had to make it 55 or make it 65, and you killed your story. I know. Yeah. Now you've got this freedom of letting the story exist, or you can move some scenes from one ep to another episode, and that... Freedom, I think, is what allows TV to be a bit freer. I mean, the visual effects that these guys have done on Andor is film quality. This is, they're extraordinary. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those, are, those are the guys from Rogue One. Those are, those are our guys. Yeah, I left the episode with green screens and not people in it. And when I came to see the finished thing, I went to see the mix with John, and I was like, my jaw dropped. Yeah. That level of detail that Moen and those the VFX guys brought to it, that was movies. So I feel like it's merging together. And the storytelling is being allowed to be a bit freer. And I think that's a really good place. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you could see something like Andor five, ten years ago. No. No. Things have changed so dramatically. Yeah. And this big canvas is great. Game of Thrones kind of put it like people looked at that and they, they considered the possibilities, I think. That was maybe the first show that I can remember that, that I could really see so much money on the screen like that. Yeah. I think Game of Thrones was like a touchstone to that. Yeah. And you're talking about features, something that you probably wouldn't see in a TV show a few years ago is even that shot when Cass is approached by the two guards who come up behind him in episode one, and we're just staying on Cass's face for so much of it. And then we don't go into coverage until the fight happens. And just taking those big swings is something that I think TV is now embracing, which they wouldn't have done several years ago. It's interesting that you picked that out because it really is a very cinematic moment. It's one of the very, very few scenes that we reshot because that was like one of our first weeks and it was pretty good, but I think people huddled together and, and luckily we were able to redo that. But it's meant to look like a feature. It's funny, we had the premiere and trying to figure out what we're going to show the first episode, the first two episodes. And I would say, God, the first three are sort of like a feature. They even have like a little cliffhanger, right? So I just put them together. It really did play as a feature. It was great. It was like, you're watching a movie. You're, you're watching. Yeah, I, I had the, the joy of watching it at the IMAX screen in Leicester Square. But I've seen a few films on those screens. And this, this held up. This looked great. Yeah, I was worried about that. I was like, well, it hold up. And I, as soon as I saw it on the big screen, I'm like, it's going to be great. I think the cinematographers were 
fantastic. Adriana and Damien looked and sounded amazing. Did you always have the Android B stutter? Yes, that was written that way. It was written that way. Interesting. It's funny because the guy who does it is this guy, Dave Chapman, who's the puppeteer. So he's on the set. He's acting. And like almost everything you hear, he's doing all the stuttering and stuff like in real time. It's not manipulated. And as we were going along, I realized how good he was. And everybody thought, okay, we're going to get a voice. This is just temporary. I think we collected maybe a dozen really top voiceover people. And they were giving us some really interesting performances. But I lobbied heavily for David. I, I told my brothers, look, this is gold. This is good right out of the box. I mean, we don't have to mm. do anything. It's amazing. I think he looped like three lines in the whole show. I mean, he's wow. like everything you hear, production dialogue. And it's funny, when we try to replicate and stutter other people electronically, it just didn't have the humanity that he was able to bring. And he does all the puppet stuff too. I actually love that robot. I think he's the most emotive robot of all the robots. He, the way he can cock his- I agree. He's, he's, he's your pet dog, isn't he? He's the dog. He's, he's the old dog. He's the... Uh, he's... You say humanity, and I totally agree, because you feel so much for B. When Marva is- spoiler alert, passed away, you feel so bad for him because he just doesn't know how to function. He doesn't have casts and he's just lost. You feel so much for this I robot. Know. And I also love that one little scene that you cut, Jan, at the beginning of, I believe it's episode 11, where you have the POVs of B and it's very effective. Yeah, it was astonishing. As John's saying, that sort of combination of the puppeteer, because he would spin the head whilst he would talk or not talk. So he was in <laughs> sync. He was in sync with the movements. Wow. I was just drawn into that. I pretty much edit for emotion. That's kind of the way I go. Like John's saying, you know, this is the most emotional droid. I would agree. The guy's voice was so good. So it was cutting with another actor and his big mono eye at the front that you can sort of look into, you know, and reflect from. Mm. And I think inside the chest of the B2, there's a little spinning sort of hexagon, like his heart. And if you look closely, that little thing spins around before he speaks. It's very clever. That's awesome. We'll be right back. Academy Award winner James Cameron takes us back to the stunning world of Pandora for an epic journey that once again pushes the boundaries of what is possible in filmmaking. Nominated for Best Picture and Best Director by the Critics' Choice Awards and the Golden Globes, along with being awarded one of AFI's Top 10 Films of the Year. USA Today calls it emotionally charged. CNN raves, it rekindles that sense of wonder that demands to be seen. Entertainment Weekly hails it as astonishing. And Peter Travers of ABC News proclaims, you've never seen anything like it in your life. Avatar, The Way of Water. Rated PG-13 for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture and Best Film Editing. Now playing only in theaters. Talk to me about the mystery that you're creating with the beginning of this series where you're intercutting the orphans with Canari and how that is dovetailing with what's going on with cast now and whether you guys stuck to the structure that was scripted or did you guys vary that? That was scripted. You know, Tony and I were talking on an interview and I pointed out, I don't think there are any deleted scenes in the entire season. Wow. I mean, we used 
everything. And the reason we probably used everything was because it was written so tight. So we just had a really damn good map. We did a little bit of moving around in the sixth episode. We swapped a couple scenes in terms of their placement. As far as the eye sequence where they're going to escape through the eye. Right. Like, I mean, and, and that even wasn't, I mean, that initially started off as Bihaz explaining to the other Imperial officer about the Aldanians. And we realized it would be so much more impactful and powerful if you were with our guys just, you know, brewing coffee and worrying about what they're going to have to do today. And putting that scene at the front instead of the, the colonel, it was so much more emotional. It, it raised the stakes of everything. I had a quite a moment because we, we shot 11 and 12 in block two. So that came after John, your first three, right? So right. we filmed that out of order. So we were doing, but originally Luthen's Hallcraft sequence was in a 12. And, and when I assembled both the Eps, 12 was like a starter and main course, a dessert and a digestivo, you know, and 11 sort of felt like a starter in the main course. And they both worked, but I, I started the day one morning and I, I convinced myself that I read the script with the Luthan Hallcraft scene in 11. So I moved it and it's really nicely rebalanced 11. Mm-hmm. That was a brilliant move. That was really, okay, that's the only That's the only one. thing, that's the only thing. I, yeah, I, no, but when you did it, everyone was like, of course it belongs in 11. I convinced myself that I read that in a script. I said to Tony, you wrote this? And he said, no, I didn't. And I was like, you must have done it. So I imagined it. So that, you know, that's the sort of dark arts of editing, isn't it? You sort of convince yourself. That's where it's Tony's where a better writer from. in your imagination is what you're really saying. That's what you're it's true. It was, it, it, yeah, but it, it found a home and it balanced that kind of simplicity of 12, you know, that everyone arrives and it sort of bruised. And, yeah, and that. You, don't want, you don't want that. It's about the funeral and the battle. And that battle really punched 11 in a really great way. So exciting. But yeah, nothing, nothing fell to the floor. Was, Which is uh, weird. It's just weird, right? Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've had to throw away three days of filming with some fantastic performances and some good scenes yep. to make an episode yep. better than yeah. without it, you know, and that's, that's extraordinary, you know, that we did move things around opening at 12, John, then I sort of came up with Wilmot. We had a scene where he built the bomb. Oh, and then you started intercutting it with uh, a motif. You know, use it yeah, as a motif. motif. And, and actually when I stand back from 12 now, 12 is a sort of series of montages and monologues. It sort of became a montage episode in its nature. It just felt much better to have all these little moving parts and sort of bookend it with the bomb building, you know, because Ben shot really nicely. He sort of loves shooting macro with macro lenses, you know, some really nice tight stuff. So we sort of used it in a way that you didn't quite know what it was until he arms it at the end. Then as soon as you got to the end of that montage, sort of Cassian was back. So it sort of held all those threads together. Right. And I also love the intercutting when uh, we hear Nemec's reading of his oh yeah tome and how that is then intercut with different shots uh leading up to this big funeral how important that was a nice evolution i think the scene was dry originally and dramatically it was on that lovely stormy rainy night and we we grabbed some stuff with bix in the prison and if i remember rightly tony wrote that a couple times didn't it and just went to this I mean, authority is brittle. It went to this magical place. Yeah, he, he wrote it. We got Nemekin to, to do it. I, Marvin maybe is the bigger piece of soul there, like her. Sure. You know, but, but Nemec probably affects Cass more. Yeah. And also talking about the entire rebellion. Yeah. You know, his manifesto. Setting up season two. Yeah, right. Right. Oh, 
I can say one thing about the Nemec Manifesto speech is that I think is it Arabish, the Star Wars language? The symbols, yeah. Those are all authentic to what he's saying. So if you're like a real Star Wars fan, you could translate that. Everything makes sense. The, 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 <laughs> the VFX guys were very particular about making that happen. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, that's, that's good detail, isn't it? Talk about balancing the tone because though it's very dark, there's also this very wry sense of humor, which I love, and making sure that the humor didn't at any time detract from the dark tone. Well, yeah, it's a balance, isn't it? It's a balance. You know, I think a good example of that is in 12, I think when Cassian's in meets Brasso in the tunnel and he recites the message from Marvig, which is sort of heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking and then he says i'm going to go and rescue bix and you know i think Brasso says you're going to take on a whole garrison you know and he just gives him this look that's that kind of nuanced yeah comedy that's not sort of laugh out loud but it's just come off the back of a heart-wrenching brought tears to my eyes that scene when i cut that and then you sort of have that quite quick response to that and, and you're on your way if i hark back to the original first three films that was sort of han solo's skill wasn't it to mm. sort of bring that slightly quick reply off the back of eight minute action sequence or something humor yeah. is a great way uh, yeah, it's necessary when you're dealing with a lot of adversity or sadness humor comes in handy <laughs> it, it true does. i mean it could just get too oppressive yeah enjoying the light in the dark which is essentially the sort of core of the whole thing anyway isn't it so i think the funniest thing I had was the, the fishermen at the front of Eleven. They were sort of these sort of... They were, they were our, that was a nice, like, <laughs> very light, crazy... The sort of Cornish patois, wasn't it? I have no idea where that came <laughs> It was, that was laugh out, that was sort of laugh out loud. Well, also their voices are perfect. Their faces are just yeah. so interesting. Yeah. I think, again, that's a place where I think we use the puppeteer's voices. I think these puppeteers are really surprised. We're like, yeah, this sounds good. No, I think that I think those were the guys. The fact that they're actually doing the acting themselves is kind of cool. Yeah. I love episode three when Luthen comes to buy the part from Cass and you have the blues coming and there's just such a great buildup. And then you've got that amazing, crazy firefight where all the machinery is like flying all over that warehouse and it's right. just fantastic that was a big first dramatic scene between luthan and andor it was their first meet it was a very important scene i remember i kind of put that together but tim took the shootout he said okay, let me take a crack at that and i'm like yeah go ahead and um it turned out so well i mean those things obviously didn't weigh as much as they looked like they weighed but a lot of that was actually one big take where they just dropped that stuff all over the place. And uh, that's in the show. I think sound designers did such a great job because it just felt so intense and so out of control in that factory. Yeah, they have a way of being able to make that feel big without making it sound crazy. It needed a special hand there to give it volume, but also to be able to hear any voice that might come through or anything else. It's, it's a tricky business. It took a while to mix that scene, to mix that little section. Yeah, I can imagine. And the end of that episode is really emotional, too, when Cass is getting away and then you thread how Cass and Marva had met each other when Cass was young and Marva with tears in her eyes. Tell me about the structure of that. Tim left and we hadn't done any of the Canari stuff with the kids. We really had to wait 
So we got the second block to do that. So when we finally got the kids and we got young Casa in the ship and all that stuff, when I put that stuff together in the back, I forget what I was using some music, could have been just some temp music from like Thin Red Line or something, but it just wrapped around the whole thing. And when you cut back and forth between older Cassian and young Cassa in the ship and looking at his mother, I just, that's when I felt a little lump in my throat. Yeah. And I was like, oh, good. I'm, yeah. I'm on to something here. This is feeling really good. It was just a great way to end that show. Yeah, it was really powerful. There's such great transitions throughout the whole series. Can you talk to me about making sure that those really punched? You know, sometimes the transitions were even surprising to us because it hasn't been totally imagined and constructed by the VFX people. And they were always coming up with great transitions themselves. You know, mm. like the architecture of Coruscant or just a connective piece, but they've made so much more out of the shot, you know, made it more of a storytelling device. I still found one naturally in 11 when they're on the cliff edge. Again, it's that love of macro photography going sort of wide to tight. I went back to the top shot down the cliff edge and then we shot a teacup on top of B2 and he begins to rattle. So the moisture of the tea is low in the cup. I kind of sort of did a little blend and I thought, oh my God, that cliff edge lines up perfectly with that tea line <laughs> and sort of mixed through. That was quite satisfying. And then the water happened and then you cut very wide, the brass are catching the cup. Ben had planned the macro shot, but not necessarily came to me and went, this is going to be a dissolve. And that's a nice evolution, I guess, of transitions that comes naturally. Yeah. One thing that I thought was also really strong, and I think a lot of it's in the writing, but a lot of it's also in the performances, is there's some really fantastic dialogue scenes. Can you talk to me about those sequences? The scene I did with Vela morning when she starts to talk about potentially giving away her daughter, you know. Yeah, that was very powerful. It was very nuanced. It was very nuanced because it never said, yes. he talked mm -hmm. about many things in a different way, which again, it's that, you know, such credit. It's all the subtext. Subtext, like Tony's subtext is extraordinary. And then you get actors perform like that. Again, that was a scene I just felt emotionally connected to. Heartbreaking. It was pretty, pretty impressive acting. That subtext was extraordinary. You can watch a scene like that and you understand everything, yet you never talk about any of it. It's yeah. true. It's true. Very clever. Episode six was just so incredible. And I just love the build up to them trying to steal the money and then all the chaos as they try to load up the ship and get away and Nemec getting pinned. Can you talk to me about that episode? Because I just thought that that was so well constructed. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I've done a few action, you know, big action movies and things. It's a little bit like, you know, you're pulling those tools out of your bag and you're, it's about creating tension and then knowing when to release it, I would say. And it was, it was fun. It was fun. I mean, the things that sort of punched it through, I mean, no one knew what the eye of Aldani was going to look like. And we had, you know, we just had horrible little scribbles on the skyline. And then finally the VFX people showed us like the first shot of what that would be. We got very excited because the whole thing works anyway, but you add that into the sky. It's always, it's great. You do something and you, and you really love what you do. And then someone waves a magic wand and they make it better. And you're like, <laughs> you're like, wow, it's fun. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how I, I don't, you just do it. I don't, 
know. I don't know what you do. Yeah. I don't know how I do it, but you just, you just. <laughs> well, well said. Yeah. And I think one of the things that also added a lot of attention to that whole episode was the Danani, because there's just such a buildup to the eye. And it's good that the eye looks so good because all these characters are saying, you've never seen anything like it. I just have to see the eye. And so it's got to look good. I, well, that's, that's what we were all worried about. We were like, yeah, we were all worried about that. We were like, this, this thing doesn't pay off. Yeah, with everyone saying it, you might as well cut out all those lines of everybody saying it's something. Because, <laughs> But then also them singing and chanting, and that was creating a lot of anxiety and tension as well, cutting back to them as the Imperial ships ready themselves to fly, and all that stuff was just very intense. You know what? It's funny, because action is, you know, it's wonderfully complicated, and it's like, you know, you're spinning a whole bunch of plates, but on some level, for me anyway, it's not any harder. It might be a little bit easier than a dramatic scene because yeah, yeah. when I have you know a bunch of plates to spin, I can always go to another plate. I always have somewhere to go. Yeah, I'm never gonna bore anybody. So I, like, and I and you have to keep attendance on everybody. Like, make sure you know where everybody is at any point. It's complicated, but it's not. It's not as hard sometimes. It's just two people talking in a room and really getting the subtext. And I'm not diminishing what I, I mean, I'm very proud of that episode. But for me, it's, I think the smaller thing is sometimes harder. You have to listen harder. Bix has such a huge evolution in this. And I think her arc is really interesting. And just to see this beautiful woman just broken at the end. Yeah, but when the time she got to me, she was pretty broken. She got broken bit before me it wasn't a great deal left of her mentally which is again fantastic performance and you, you could see a, a twinkle in her eye that she was still there which is i think it's a really nice balance mm. but i sort of connected to this i think when cassian rescues her in rick's road and sees how damaged she is and she says i dreamt that you were coming yet you climbed over a wall i think is one of the most marvelous lines ever you know that's that mm connection that she's gone all the way back to those early apps because there's a bit of a love interest there isn't there john they sort of oh yeah. yeah well they had one in the past yeah and i think that to sort of come back and you know you, you made it and you climbed over i just think that that sort of encapsulated that whole entire journey that she never gave up it's a hard thing to put off isn't it relationships there's always that hope you know sort of cassian is a character that sort of never lets go of that mm-hmm when he goes to get her, he, he, that's all he's doing in 12. He's, the funeral's the sort of side thing to the whole thing. He's like, I'm just going to go and get Bix. Those, so those two things play, they totally connect, but yet they're actually sort of separate stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the smartness of the whole show. What would you say was the greatest challenge editing this season? Well, it's just a much, much bigger canvas. It was really like doing four movies in two years with the same characters. Outside of that, it really was no different for me. It was just a lot more of it. (laughs) (laughs) Have you had co-editors on your other films? Well, yeah, well, that was, that was fun. I mean, like, obviously there's so much to do and I've occasionally worked with one other editor or whatever, but no, this was part of what I did was managerial. Jan and everybody would go off and do their thing and work with the director. And I was rooting for them. I mean, (laughs) I wanted to make sure everything was going to be good because there was plenty to do. I mean, every show is in various degrees of being finished at at whatever point as you go through the assembly line of this. 
I think from my perspective, it was when long conversations have been about it, Tony talked about it, it was the sort of keeping that grit and dirt and that sweat and that, you know, that the dirt under your nails is what Ferret sort of represented. The working class industrial planet. Mm. To hold on to that. And again, repeating what we said earlier, to keep that grown up thread, that's the challenge I held on to, was always believing it. And then you see the two worlds so differently when you see the senator's totally place, and then you see Ferrix. It's just so different. Yeah, you can connect. There's a connection to it. You can connect the haves, the have-nots. Well, the haves and the have-nots, and certainly in the country where I live, you know, over here in small little England, you know, we have that industrial north and the slightly richer south of the city. You know, the metropolis of London. You know, lots of countries have that divide, don't they? So to sort of lean into that and to sort of keep that spit and sawdust, which was a production thing, you know, but I think to just toe that line and keep it, it's very easy to go away from that. It's a little bit what you touched on earlier, like with the humour, you know, you can lose that if you go slightly two degrees to the left. Sure. You know? Yep. What would you say was your favourite scenes to cut? Oh, John, that's so many. Is I know, the, right? The Luthan Hallcraft was the sequence. Of that, that. Was that was fun. Yeah, it was pretty sexy. Yeah, the effects guys, when I arrived, there was there was a sort of previs mock-up of that. And it was pretty robust and solid, John, wasn't it? it was, and that again, that's that line of slightly witty, isn't it? Witty against the sort of action. And I, I really enjoyed the little droid and the sort of control to shit. That was a nice little touch, mm. the sort of little old. Oh, yes, yes. Well, the fact that it comes back when Luthen enters the ship at the very end and he knows something's off yeah. when he looks at that droid. Luthen knows him so well he doesn't have to speak that little movement of him and his little lenses spin around. And we sort of lent into that quite a bit, just to bring him a little bit of character. That was a nice sort of touch. But all of it was a joy. I mean, for me, probably the Marvel sequence was ultimately the thing. When she's giving her speech as the hologram. Yeah, that's probably the most emotional, I, I would say, for you. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. What about for you, John? What was your favorite part of the process? Episode three, because like it's sort of the climax of that block. And Cyril's so good. His character is so interesting. And then Aldani was just like, got really crazy. It's fun when you take all those little pieces and you put them together and they, there it is. And like, and it, it works. It feels, good. <laughs> it feels good. Yeah. It's a very rich universe, isn't it? It has a, a spine and it has a soul. This whole story of dark and light and oppression and freedom is universal, isn't it? But when placed in this backdrop of spaceships and the characters actually at the forefront always i think in Mandal. yeah that's our that's our bread and butter sure one of the great things is that you can not make people fatigued and talk about these very present day issues that we're dealing with now 100%. and you put them into a different world and you can get people to enjoy watching this stuff about oppression i think the, the audiences can connect to that you know from I agree. That's yeah. the one thing that people pick up on, isn't it? I think I think audiences responded to that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going on around us now, isn't it? And, and to speak like that in a science fiction platform is good storytelling in my book. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The authoritarians are very much out there these days. It gets closer to us all the time, doesn't it? I've done a lot of television, and I do like pressing play and escaping. And I do like pressing something and being fully entertained. And I do like learning something. But I think Tony's writing and, and everyone that came to it, I think it's brought something a little bit for Yeah, them. a little bit of both. Yeah, you're, you're right. A little bit of both. And I think that's a pretty tough yeah. plank to walk. 
Well, the whole prison break is very powerful too. And, and yeah, really powerful. Yeah, and I enjoyed it. when every time I watched one, I wanted to watch the next one a week later. I felt that. Right. That's pretty tricky. Yeah, I loved it. Thanks, Glenn. Again, it's that brilliant nuance of balance of acting. Like at the end of 12, when he says, kill me and take me in. You know, as an audience, you know he's not going to kill him because he's got to get onto the into the Rogue One movie, but you still feel it. Yeah, you still have that tension. Yeah, so you still got tension, yet you know. And that's a, that's hard, tricky storytelling. You yeah, know? no, it's... it's yeah. Uh, what's great about this is we, we know where we have to land at the end of season two. Season one's created all these threads. Season two is going to be really rich, but it's going to end right when Rogue One begins. And it's like, there's something really comforting about that. That's really good. Well, I love the series. I loved what you guys did with it. And I'm so happy that I had a chance to talk to you guys today. Thank you, Glenn. Absolute pleasure. It was really a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. There will be no rules going forward. That's what a reckoning sounds like.